0: Step out of the everyday world and take a journey into the mystical underground.
1: Hi, this is Trish McGregor. Thank you for joining me. When we first started the podcast in 2020 in the midst of COVID, we'd planned to have a writer's corner. This piece on science fiction visions was planned for that. Science fiction writers have a long tradition of envisioning the future and its technology that later becomes scientific fact. Through their creativity, they tune in on the future. Take Jules Verne. In his 1870 novel, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, he imagined an underwater ship powered by electricity. American inventor Simon Lake was inspired by the novel and invented his own submarine, the Argonaut, in 1888. Fern's novel, From the Earth to the Moon, published in 1865, described the details of a space capsule that in 1969 sent astronauts to the moon, the Apollo 11. He stipulated how long the flight would last, that it would be launched for Florida, and a splashdown in the ocean. He also described light-propelled spacecraft now known as solar sails, uh, solar sails, and keep in mind that Fern was living in the time of the Civil War. He isn't unique. Throughout history, numerous examples exist of how writers, artists, movie makers, and others in creative professions depicted numerous inventions and details about future events that they realistically had no way of knowing. But Verne, as a science fiction writer, may hold the top prize. Edward Bellamy is probably best known for his his 1888 Looking Backward, a utopian novel set in Boston in 2000. In the story, the U.S. is a country that exists in a spirit of cooperation and brotherhood, not exactly what life is like in the 21st century. However, the people in his utopia carry cards that allow them to make purchases without cash. Sounds a lot like a debit card. Then there's Robert Heinlein. His most famous novel was probably Stranger in a Strange Land, but like many writers, he started out writing short stories. In 1941, he published Solution Unsatisfactory, in astounding science fiction about a future world where the U.S. develops an atomic atomic weapon that will end World War II. The event launches a nuclear arms race. The story was written before the U.S. entered world War II and five years before the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In 1953, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 describes little seashells, thimble radios. Portable headphones already existed, but they were massive and heavy. Bradbury's Thimble Radio describes earbuds, which didn't come into wide use until 2000. With the popularity of wireless earbuds, the little seashells became an even more apt metaphor. Then there is uh, the book banning in his novel and the burning of books, which is what's happening in Florida and other states around the country right now in 2023. Then there's the 1969 novel Stand on Zanzibar by John Brunner. It takes place in 2010. A man named Obama is president. Terrorist attacks and school shootings are rampant. Cell phone video chats are a way to communicate. Cars are powered by rechargeable electric fuel cells. William Gibson's 1984 novel Neuromancer predicted the World Wide Web, virtual reality, cyberspace, and hacking a decade before the internet existed as it does today. In May 1982, Stephen King published The Running Man under the pseudonym Richard Bachman. The story is set in the U.S. in 2025. Life is a dystopian nightmare, the economy lies in ruins, and Ben Richards, the protagonist, is desperate. He's unemployed, his daughter is terribly ill, and his wife is now prostituting to help pay the bills. He undergoes rigorous training, so he'll be chosen to participate in The Running Man, the most lucrative show of Games Network. He'll be hunted by the network's elite killing team, and if he manages to survive 30 days, he'll win $1 billion. In 1987, the novel became a movie starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. In September 1989, a TV reality show, American Gladiators, premiered that had some uncanny parallels to The Running Man, well, minus the death threat. These examples are just a small section of science fiction novels that presage the future. Did these writers, through their creative endeavors, dive into the archetypal well of ideas where time doesn't exist? When novelists are plugged into their stories and characters, they often envision the inventions, gadgets, society, and government they describe. But what happens when a group of writers get together and work on scripts for TV and movies? Well, take a look at Star Trek. One of the fo- most famous Star Trek gadgets was the communicator, which looked similar to the cell phones of today. Martin Cooper, who oversaw the invention of the first mobile, mobile phone in the 70s, directly cr- uh, credited Star Trek for inspiring his vision. Then there's the pad, a device first seen in Star Trek The Next Generation in the late 80s. The pad, or personal access display device, bore a strong resemblance to today's Android and Apple tablets, and had a similar smooth, flat touchscreen surface. While several movies and TV shows predicted the touchscreen's interface, the film Minority Report, based on a short story by Philip K. Dick, was probably the most accurate in predicting how universal touch technology would become. In 2013, researchers at the University of Bristol announced ultra-haptic technology, which allows for touchscreen technology without the touching, just like in the movie. The 2004 movie Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind imagined a procedure where memories can be erased. In 2013, scientists were testing a drug that blocked certain types of memories in animals with just a single dose. Three-month-old memories of lab rats were erased, and weeks later, there was no sign of the memory returning. The 1990 film Total Recall portrayed high-speed full-body security cameras, scanners. In 2016, Boston-based Evolve Technology announced plans for the first public trials of AI-powered high-speed body scanners. Then there are glaring <coughs> instances of precognition through creativity in certain novels. In 1972, Regency Press published a novel, Black Abductor, by Harrison James, a pseudonym for James Rusk, Jr., It's about a terrorist group led by a black man who kidnapped a college student, Patricia. Her wealthy father was well known and had right-wing sympathies. In the novel, Patricia was kidnapped near campus while she was with her boyfriend and was badly beaten by the abductors. Uh, For a while, the boyfriend was a suspect in the case. The fictional Patricia initially resisted her captors but eventually subscribed to their ideology and became a champion of their cause. The terrorists sent Polaroid photos to her father and described the abduction as America's first political kidnapping. They predicted they eventually would be surrounded by police, tear gassed, and wiped out. Two years after the book was published, in 1974, Patricia Hearst, daughter of newspaper baron Randolph Hearst, and then a college student, was abducted from her apartment or campus. The kidnappers were members of the East Liberation Army, a terrorist group led by the black man. Her boyfriend, Stephen Weed, was with her at the time, was badly beaten, and became a suspect in the case. Patricia Hearst, like the fictional Patricia, became a sympathizer of her abductor's cause. She ended up robbing a bank with her kidnappers and was uh, photographed carrying an M.I. carbine. The FBI was either familiar with the novel or had read it, and the author became a suspect in the case. The real-life abductors were eventually surrounded by the police, tear-gassed, and killed, just as the fictional uh, kidnappers predicted they would be. So had the terrorists read the novels? Or was this an instance where a creative edge enabled an author to sense the future so deeply that he uncovered stunning details identical to those that came about two years later? Then there's Edgar Allan Poe. In Poe's unfinished sea novel, adventure novel, uh, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Penn, he seems to have tapped into the future. The tale includes a scenario about three men and a 16-year-old boy who are drifting at sea in a lifeboat after being shipwrecked. Desperate on the brink of starvation, they decide to draw lots to determine which of them will be killed and eaten. The cabin boy, Richard Parker, picks the dreaded short straw and is promptly stabbed and consumed. On July 25, 1884, 47 years after post up, working on the novel, a 17-year-old cabin boy named Richard Parker was killed and eaten in a similar incident. Young Richard Parker was on his first voyage on the high seas boarding the Miganet in Southampton, England, bound for Australia. But when the ship reached the South Atlantic, it was pummeled by a hurricane and sank. The survivors, who had boarded a lifeboat, had few provisions and after 19 days became desperate. The men discussed drawing lots to choose a victim who would be eaten by the others, but settled on Parker, who had become delirious from drinking seawater. The remaining crew survived on Richard's carcass for another 35 days until they were rescued by the SS Montezuma, aptly named after the cannibal king of the Aztecs. This eerie connection between fiction and real life was revealed on May 4, 1974, uh, when 12-year-old Nigel Parker, who was related to Richard Parker, submitted the story to the Sunday Times of London which was conducting a contest to find the best coincidence. The Richard Parker story not only won, but was called one of the best coincidences ever recorded by author uh, Arthur Kessler, who had sponsored the contest. Astonishingly, the Richard Parker synchronicities have continued, and a cousin of Nigel Parker, Craig Hamilton Parker, has a website documenting it. Storm Surge in 1992, before I knew about any of these precognitive book, movies and books, I had a similar experience. On August 14, 1992, I, ma- I mailed off a novel, Storm Search, to my new editor at Hyperion. It was the seventh in a se- series that featured a husband and wife detective team. The story revolved around a Category 5 hurricane named Alfonso that slams into South Florida and flattens entire neighborhoods. On that same day, A tropical wave moved off the coast of Africa, one of many that roll away from that continent during hurricane season. It had completely escaped my notice, but then again, this was in the days before smartphones, social media, or even the internet. But ten days later, the wave had grown into one of the most powerful hurricanes on record. At one point, its winds were estimated to be in excess of 200 miles an hour. Hurricane Andrew walloped Homestead, Florida, wiped it off the map and obliterated entire neighborhoods. It also changed the Florida, the whole geography of Florida for decades to come. The synchronicity is striking in several ways. In fiction and real life, both hurricanes were first named storms in the season and began with an A. They were both category fives. Both were tightly compacted stored storms. They targeted only a small area. In the book, It was Miami Beach and South Beach that took the hit. In real life, it was Homestead, about 40 miles south of Miami Beach.
0: Thanks for joining The Mystical Underground. Visit www.themysticalunderground.com for the latest blog post and book info. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, google podcast or your favorite podcast app listen to the podcast at podcast.themysticalunderground.com follow trish and rob on instagram at trish and rob mcgregor follow us on twitter at the mystic cast send email to podcast at and until next week thank you for listening and stay, Mr.